This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, August 21st, 2020. I'm Jason Breifel from Shaw, Bransford & Roth. Today we're highlighting the efforts to strengthen the first branch of government, Congress and its support institutions. To guide that discussion, we'll be hearing from Chairman Derek Kilmer and Vice Chair Tom Graves from the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. The committee is established in 2019 to investigate, study, make findings, hold public hearings, develop recommendations to make Congress more effective, efficient, and transparent on behalf of the American people. The Select Committee is one of the only true bipartisan committees in Congress with an equal number of Republican and Democratic members. Before we dive into today's program, I want to remind our listeners that FedTalk is brought to you by FedPoint, previously known as Long-Term Care Partners. FedPoint administers the Office of Personnel Management-sponsored federal long-term care insurance program. To learn more, visit them at fedpointusa.com today. Chairman Kilmer, Vice Chairman Graves, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Uh, let's dive in. Can you just tell us, how, how did we get here? Why was this committee created? Uh, maybe we can start with you, Chairman Kilmer. You bet. Well, um, <laughs> in the beginning, uh, if you go back, uh, even before the beginning of this Congress, there were discussions about uh, how to make Congress function better. And uh, there were discussions about rules updates, and it was a lot of bipartisan conversation that ended up leading some to, to some new rules at the beginning of this Congress, trying to have a more collaborative uh, process uh, within the House. During those conversations in the run-up to this Congress, there were a whole lot of topics that were brought up that members would say, yeah, that is something worth looking at. So for example, how do we recruit, retain, and have a more diverse staff? How do we have technology? You know, Congress has been described as an 18th century institution using uh, 20th century technology to solve 21st century problems. So how do we have uh, Congress use technology in a way that helps better solve problems and better engage our constituents? Um, how, how do we look at having Congress function in a way that's uh, more efficient and effective. And on it, when those issues would come up, generally speaking, members said, yeah, those are worth looking at. They're not really rules issues. So maybe let's put them in a bucket for maybe a future committee. And in fact, about every 20 or 30 years or so, uh, Congress has created a committee like this to say, how do we have a Congress that functions better on behalf of the American people? And so uh, uh, in the rules package at the beginning of this Congress, this committee was established. And to your point, Jason, it was set up with an equal number of Democrats and Republicans, understanding that if you're going to make systemic change, it has to be bipartisan. And um, uh, we were given a pretty broad mandate to cover some of those topics that I mentioned. It's a committee that um, uh, doesn't have legislative authority, but we've decided to do things a little bit differently than past select committees. Um, uh, for one, we're not just bipartisan in terms of the makeup of the committee, we're, we're a truly bipartisan committee in that uh, to Tom's credit uh, and to the credit of the members of the committee, we all agreed to have a joint staff. So rather than having half of the committee's funding go to uh, pay Democrats and half go to pay Republicans, we just have a joint, uh, a joint staff that's all working together, uh, not wearing blue jerseys or red jerseys, but wearing fixed Congress jerseys. We've now passed as a committee 57 recommendations and all of them have passed with unanimous support of Democrats and Republicans. That's very rare in Congress to see that, that type of bipartisanship. And the other thing that we're doing that's a little bit unique is that we're turning our recommendations into legislation um, because we don't want this to just be a report that we issue at the end uh, of this process. We're making rolling recommendations 
uh, with an eye towards uh, trying to make change to have Congress function better. Thank you so much, Chairman Kilmer. That's a wonderful introduction. Uh, Vice Chairman Graves, can you build on that um, uh, through your experience a year and a half in, into this select committee? Yeah, and, and, and Jason, thanks for hosting this important conversation. And it's it's always good to be uh, with my good friend, Derek Kilmer. Um, uh, you know, I know I'm via phone here. It's a, it's a little different, but he and I have worked together uh, in an amazing way because of his uh, his direction and, and the way he's tackled this committee and, and brought everybody together to understand that the focus is is to make Congress work better for the American people. And, you know, as with any organization that's not in the private sector that's struggling, you know, generally you create a committee to study it and to come up with some thoughts. And then as it relates to Congress, there's not a great success rate. Uh, in, in fact, history would show that most of these committees have failed, quite frankly, and uh, don't produce any recommendations to actually address the challenges they were intended to address. Uh, but under the chairman's leadership, um, this committee has, has basically just broken the mold and uh, nearly 60 recommendations have been passed out of the committee uh, in, in unanimous form when past committees have really never passed any recommendations out. And so this is truly a unique opportunity for us. Um, and uh, you, you mentioned a year and a half in, you know, originally the committee was only given a life of a year. Uh, and uh, because of the work and the direction of the chairman, um, members of both sides, uh, of Republicans and Democrats, um, uh, came together uh, from the different caucuses and the different classes to petition the leadership of both parties to say, no, this committee needs to go, needs more time. And that's, that's led us, who would have ever thought, to addressing some of the important issues of today uh, in the pandemic time, and, and that, which has sort of led to our last set of recommendations as a place to continuity. So I, I say all that to say that the context of this is really fan, amazing and fantastic that the intent of the committee has um, the support of all of Congress. Actually, it was the only rule that Congress voted on in bipartisan support of the last rules package. And then the extension of the committee, uh, which has led us into this most important time. But none of that would have been possible without uh, the chairman's direction, which is a hope for other committees, an example of how. Um, Republicans and Democrats can work together to tackle very difficult and challenging and, and with diverse opinion type problems uh, and, and effectively pass out uh, recommendations. That's such a great story at a time when we've we've seen our government struggling to to respond to the pandemic, whether it's the technology front, the staff skill set side, and it sounds like uh, this has been a long time in coming for Congress broadly reflecting on the, the frustration of the public uh, with the ability of the body to, to, to do its work, um, but then also the ability as legislators to come together um, and deliver for the public. And, and it sounds like because of the direction, um, we're working together that, that uh, through your joint leadership as, as vice chair and chair, that the committee was able to demonstrate this last year um, is fortuitous almost, uh, that, that, that COVID elevated the importance, particularly on the technology, uh, the continuity pieces uh, for the body to continue being able to serve the public, um, in including remotely uh, for a long period of time this year. Yeah, we've, we've um, actually, even in the midst of the pandemic, continued operating as a committee. We've hosted um, six virtual discussions with our uh, our committee, um, and in fact, our last, in fact, our last round of recommendations focused on continuity of Congress. Interestingly enough, that was a topic we were digging in on before anyone had really heard of coronavirus, and uh, uh, that ended up being a very timely uh, uh, topic. Um, you know, and and uh, and to the credit of the members of the committee, we've um, been doing these virtual discussions, identifying issues where Congress can function better and then moving forward with recommendations. In fact, the, this last batch of recommendations was focused on continuity. Um, we made some recommendations, for example, so that each office should have a continuity of operations plan, um, including minimum safety requirements and an emergency communications plan that's made available to all staff so that offices continue to function uh, for the districts that they represent for their constituents. 
you know, making sure that the staff have the most up-to-date technology and equipment so that they can continue to work on behalf of constituents, even in the event of a disruption or, uh, or, or an, an emergency, you know, making sure that um, there's adequate uh, uh, plans for telework and that there's cybersecurity training, not just uh, for our staff, but also for members of Congress, because in this remote environment, it uh, turns out members of Congress were already, um, you know, targets, uh, but in the absence of adequate cybersecurity, that's a real threat. No, that's great. And I think that's a wonderful uh, point for us to take our first break and to come back um, with uh, Congressman Kilmer and Congressman Graves, the leaders of the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress, talk about continuity, to talk about these other technology issues uh, that, that the Congress has been working through this year. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. I'm here with Representatives Kilmer and Graves, who lead the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. Uh, before the break, we were talking about the most recent batch of recommendations that the Select Committee put out, um, and these focused on the continuity uh, of operations within Congress. And uh, Vice Chairman Graves, I'm hoping that you could unpack uh, some of those recommendations around continuity for us and our listeners. This is obviously a huge issue for all workplaces around the country uh, throughout this pandemic, and uh, obviously for our lawmakers as well. Sure, and you know, as the chairman was discussing before the break, we were already as a committee beginning to look into this topic. And and if, if I recall correctly, it, it came from another member's recommendation. We had a member listening day, and we've had a lot of outreach to members, and it was brought to our attention that if something were to happen and, and, and government was displaced, what would be the plan? But there really wasn't a plan in place. And so we fortunately had a little, little lead time, not knowing what might be around the corner. And, uh, and then the, the pandemic uh, impacted clearly the, and disrupted all of government, but particularly the, the inner workings of, of the legislative branch. And it highlighted a lot of things for us, and, and, and I think it, it actually confirmed some of our previous recommendations, but in particular, uh, you know, as it relates to technology, um, having access to and the quickest onboarding of new technology when needed uh, was something that we had previously highlighted, uh, as well as the training for members and training for staff and, 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 uh, and some of the deficiencies and, and, and such as it relates to just general technology, even in the districts as it relates to uh, you know, access to Wi-Fi and what networks you can use, you know, from a cyber security perspective. But then from a continuity perspective was, you know, the, the new recommendations, about 12 new recommendations that dealt with the continuity plans for offices, the preparation for being just being prepared for the unknown and being able to. Uh, in essence, continue full operations from remote locations, and what does that entail? And, it, and it, you know, and that would be the requirement of having the proper equipment, the proper training, and access to the equipment, and the training, when necessary. But not just for staff. Um, I think we all sort of, in, in our own ways, found that members needed some of this training and understanding of use of new technology as well. Uh, and, you know, and then had, you know, one of our largest roles is, is not necessarily voting as members of Congress, but it's the casework uh, that has to continue on. And when you're in a continuity uh, uh, situation, such as a pandemic, your casework and such, all of that is going to increase and, uh, and the attention has to stay there. So how can you continue that flow and streamline the flow of casework? Um, you know, that the committees need to be able to continue their operations. So, you know, some guidelines for committees and, and again, back to the technologies that were available. Um, but probably one that'll be something we reflect on later uh, is, is a bipartisan bicameral task force that, you know, identifying the lessons learned from this and, and 
what the continuity of Congress improvements might need to be for the future. You know, so just sort of a summary of some of those 12, but the importance of all of this has certainly been highlighted that uh, we, were, we were tracking in the right direction and had to accelerate. And on the chairman's leadership, I think we've, we've put out a good, good list and a good, good starting spot for the next Congress. And I think you make a really important point that I think could, could easily be forgotten if it wasn't made. Uh, it's not only policy legislative work that's going on. Um, a, a lot of what Congress does is casework, assisting constituents, navigating uh, the federal bureaucracy, accessing services that, that, that they're entitled to. And um, we just hadn't experienced the need to, to uh, be as, as flexible, uh, to lean into technology so that we could keep assisting our fellow citizens in that way. Um, I think that that's, that's super important. Um, uh, Chairman um, uh, Kilmer, do you wanna carry us forward? You know, we have a few more months left in this session of Congress. Uh, what are some of those other issues that you and your colleagues are grappling with? Um, what happens with, with these issues um, when this elect committee um, uh, term uh, expires at the end of this Congress? How do we keep this conversation moving forward? Well, I guess that's one of the things that I'm most excited about is, you know, this is a committee that made a decision. Um, uh, every Democrat and every Republican on the committee kind of bought into the notion that we didn't just want to issue a report. We wanted to make recommendations that could drive change and have Congress function better uh, uh, for the American people. So, you know, if you look at our first batch of recommendations, they were turned into a House resolution, passed out of the House, and some of them are already getting implemented. So, for example, making permanent the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and um, finalizing that system that allows uh, the American people to track how amendments change legislation and the impact of proposed legislation to current law so it doesn't seem so uh, distant and incomprehensible. Um, uh, you know, many of the recommendations that were passed into resolution, um, uh, Tom's uh, old subcommittee, Tom chaired the Ledge Branch Appropriations Committee, um, we were actually able to get some of those changes adopted into the Ledge Branch Appropriations Bill, and, and they included funding to implement some of those things. So that's pretty exciting. And that, I think, drives what we're looking at in the months ahead. So one, we're looking at some additional issues that we haven't been able yet to make recommendations on, uh, some oriented towards, um, uh, again, towards um, staff retention, uh, some uh, geared toward uh, uh, schedule and calendar. Um, that's been an issue that has persistently come up by members, not just because it's hard to be in multiple places at once, but, you know, if you look at last year, I think, uh, 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 you know, Congress had as many travel days as as, uh, as days on the ground, and, and, I mean, it was just not enough. It, we, Congress is not there enough to do the work it needs to do, and it means that uh, committees are all jammed into meeting at the same time, and I think that's recognized as a problem. So we're working on recommendations in that in that space. Uh, we've got just a few months left before our final report is due, and our plan is to finish strong and really leave a roadmap for future Congresses to follow. If you look at the history of these uh, uh, committees like this, not all of the change will be made during the life of this committee. At times, you will see recommendations that get implemented even a year or two or more out. And uh, I think our committee, uh, without exception, is bought into just trying to both leave a roadmap for change and to try to drive that change. It sounds like that's a great strategy with so many different recommendations, different implementation vehicles. As you mentioned, the rules, some of these processes are getting embedded in, in how the body um, uh, does its work. Um, others need to be funded or, or need more time um, and, and energy, and um, that makes sense. Um, what, if any, discussions have has the committee had with the Senate, um, which obviously faces the same, if not similar, um, challenges? Um, Mr. Graves mentioned a, uh, a bicameral potential task force. Was that embedded in one of your earlier recommendations? So not yet, um, although we have had uh, individual conversations, both with um, some current uh, members of the Senate and some former members who've said, this 
you know, we're very intrigued by what you're doing and we're concerned about the state of things. Um, you know, so we have gotten some outreach from members of the Senate saying, hey, tell me more about what you guys are up to. Uh, to Tom's point, uh, you know, some of these things, you know, as we look, for example, at budget and appropriations process reforms, in, inherent in any change there, that requires bicameral action. If we, for example, made a recommendations and we're discussing making a recommendation about, you know, doing bi biennial uh, budgeting, if not by, you know, still do annual appropriating, but biennial budgeting, um, that lends itself, you know, that would, even if we pass something out of our committee, it still requires action from the Senate. Got it. And I, I'd, I'd really like to get Congressman Graves' perspectives as an appropriator on, on this issue. Um, you know, we represent, uh, wearing another hat, many different groups of federal employees. And uh, the, uh, the challenges on consistent appropriations and budgeting uh, within the executive branch for effective operations. Um, it's nice to see that Congress has also been having the budget reform conversation. Um, curious if you could fill our audience in on and kind of the intersection between those conversations and those issues uh, with the work of, of the, the select committee, Congressman Graves. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, and both Derek and I both serve on the Appropriations Committee, and he um, was fortunate enough to serve on the, uh, the, the Budget uh, Reform Task Force or Committee from, from the last Congress. So he has a unique insight and, and into this as well. And that is, uh, I think he and I both, as well as probably that whole uh, special select committee last time uh, agree that uh, that biennial budgeting is useful. It's helpful uh, because you can you can forecast ahead uh, as to where and you can always make an interim adjustments and such. But as to what top line spending will be, um, and and that allows us as appropriators to then work underneath that and not have. Um, artificial constraints of time waiting on a budget to be adopted or a top line number to be adopted by both both chambers. And so it, it makes sense and it just sort of fits into the narrative of this committee uh, totally. And that is about uh, creating more efficiency and, and, and a government that works better uh, for, for the American people. And, and looking back over the last several years in my 10 years here, there's been way too many government shutdowns or inconsistencies or threats of that or or, or, or just the, the unknowns of what what might happen uh, from a funding perspective. And so I think the more you can provide stability and, uh, and, and forward thinking, uh, the better it is for everyone. You're here. Uh, really appreciate that, that sentiment. Congressman Graves, uh, you know, it, it seems like that that inconsistency and that inability to provide that for the country has really kind of driven again the frustration from from the public and and I can I can see um, and hear in, in each of your voices an earnestness uh, for lawmakers to do something about that. It's it's really uh, reassuring and, and and great to hear that so many of your colleagues uh, have been supportive, have been engaging. Um, in this work. Um, Chairman Kilmer, we have about a minute left before uh, we have to take our next break. Any, uh, would love to, for, to invite you to offer some, some thoughts, an invitation to our audience. Um, where can folks uh, chime in? How can we support you? Uh, we're really rooting for, for you all. Uh, the success of your committee and, and helping Congress uh, be able to do its job is, is something that's really important to all of us here. Well, I think that's what's been um, one of the most gratifying pieces of this is um, regardless of where someone sits politically, they seem invested in trying to uh, see our committee make progress. Um, we have a committee website that I would invite people to, to visit if you look up the select, if you can just Google select committee on, on the modernization of Congress and you can find our, our, our website. Um, and, and we'd certainly welcome any recommendations. There's, you know, and I know you're going to be talking to some of our, our reform-oriented partners after, after Tom and me. You know, we're also really lucky to have some extraordinary partners, nonprofit organizations, academic organizations that are also focused on making Congress work better. And I, I, I can't thank enough our partners, in, including the members of the committee, and Tom has just been an amazing tag team partner uh, as we work to make progress on this. And, um, uh, and uh I always feel like the boat moves best when every oar is in the water rowing in the same direction. And uh, certainly if the American people are 
willing to uh, pick up an oar and start pulling, uh, we need their help too. And uh, it's rare to have an issue like this where people are willing to do that. Too often the oars are out of the water in Washington, D.C. with people beating each other over the heads. Um, in this instance, trying to get stuff done together. Thank you so much again, Chairman Kilmer, Vice Chairman Graves from the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. Thank you so much for both joining Fed Talk, um, and we look forward to continuing to see the work of the Select Committee through the end of this Congress. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back. You're listening to the Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We've just heard from Representatives Kilmer and Graves, the Chairman and Vice Chairman of the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. Joining us for our second segment are two expert stakeholders who've been involved in this conversation for a long time. Kevin Kosar, Vice President for Research and Partnerships at the R Street Institute, and Daniel Schumann, Policy Director at Demand Progress and the Demand Progress Education Fund. Thank you so much, Kevin and Daniel, for joining us for the second segment of this program. Thanks for having me on. Let's start at the top, as, as we did with the members. Why the first branch? Um, why do we need to reassert the role of Congress? Uh, Kevin, do you want to start us off? Well, sure. Um, reasserting the first role of Congress is something uh, a number of us have been working on for years. And we took up this torch because... You know, the last 100 years, we've seen an increasing imbalance in the branches of government. Uh, if you look at the Constitution, Congress is the first branch of government. It has all legislative power. Uh, it has access to the money in the Treasury, which judiciary and the executive don't have. Um, it's It was supposed to predominate. It wasn't supposed to be simply just equal to the other branches. It was supposed to predominate first among the equals uh, at minimum. But now that doesn't look like our system. Now we have a peculiar arrangement where the president seems to be the be all and end all of the system. And the duty of members of Congress seems to be to either line up in support or line up in reflexive resistance. It's almost quasi parliamentary and it's not working well. Uh, Public certainly isn't happy. Their feelings towards Congress have been at historically low levels for years. They don't like the fighting. They don't like the constant uh, efforts to one side kneecap the other side. They don't like longstanding problems like immigration reform just not being settled. And so we we commenced this work because we thought we really needed to reconnect the people's branch, which is our legislature, to the people and get it to use its authorities um, and to better reflect just the complex pluralism of our nation. Very well said, and, and I think you're right. The, the, uh, this isn't a parliamentary system, but we're playing that game very well. It's, it's certainly something that uh, doesn't align with how the system's supposed to work. Uh, Daniel. Well, it, it's tough to add anything to, to what Kevin said, but uh, I, I think the, under, the, the bottom line here is the system isn't working well. Right? And people want or they're not satisfied with the results that they're getting. But we're also not seeing both short and long-term problems being solved. And to the extent that uh, problems are being addressed, it's being done by fiat, and it's being done sort of where it's an I win, you lose type of scenario, where whoever is the president or whoever runs the administration is the one who gets to win. Uh, and that's it. Uh, and I think that there's a, a second issue, which is that Right now, it's very, very easy to stop things from happening, but it's very hard to actually 
take steps to solve a problem. Uh, and that is largely due to legislative branch dysfunction that it doesn't have, they don't have the people, they don't have the capacity, they don't have the resources, they don't have the knowledge to play their constitutional role as a check on the executive branch, but more importantly, as the initiator of many of the ideas that are intended to solve problems that everybody has. And that is a fundamental problem. Um, when Congress is dysfunctional, it strengthens the hand of the executive branch. When you have only the executive branch being powerful, you have an unbalanced system that uh, creates chaos. And when you look outside today, it looks a lot like chaos. Uh, and you know, the goal is to form, as they say, a more perfect union. And the role of Congress is sort of push in that direction. And that's why we need a strong Congress. Let me briefly piggyback on that. Yeah, we're, we're seeing legislative authorities being uh, wielded by the other two branches because Congress refuses to do it. So you have a president decide to drop a, uh, an executive order on something like net neutrality. And then the next president comes and decides to drop a reversing order or something like that. The courts, more and more, they're being forced to take up uh, political challenges that they would rather not have. Uh, and people are aggressively shopping issues to the courts because they've kind of given up on Congress doing anything. And that just, it's creating these sort of spillover problems that are shaking the legitimacy of kind of the larger governing system. And I think that that's a really interesting point that you make, Kevin, is the the capacity issue at all levels of government and in the different branches of government collectively serves to undermine the trust of the public in our ability of the government to do its job. Uh, the, you know, and, and you've seen the man on the street interviews with uh, um, most Many, many Americans can't even name the three branches of government, let alone know how they're supposed to work together. And, and that's why it's been really interesting to see kind of the, the broad coalition um, that both of you are involved in that represents groups from across the political spectrum who've come together uh, to focus on this, this issue of, of congressional capacity. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about some of that work through the Ledge Branch Working Group Kind of who's who's involved there, uh, you know, the types of groups and perspectives, um, and how that's contributing to this conversation and, and and seeking to address kind of this this capacity challenge that you all have identified. Sure. Well, uh, I moved from the Library of Congress's Congressional Research Service, where I was an analyst, nonpartisan analyst, and a civil servant, a Fed, uh, in October two thousand fourteen. Um, so I moved to the private sector and I'm working at, I was working at the R Street Institute think tank. And uh, I had known by reputation one Daniel Schumann who was out there working on issues involving the legislative branch and its capacity to do stuff. And so Daniel and I very quickly connected and found things that we wanted to move forward on. And we started doing those things, a combination of education and op-edding and persuading um, legislators, uh, trying to get them to see the problems we saw. Uh, and from there, uh, things just started to snowball. Um, I met Lee Drutman at New America. Lee's on the political left, I'm on the political right. Daniel's on the political left, I'm on the political right. And we, you know, I think we all had a core of ideas about the first branch failing and that, um, Part of the problem was that Congress had been underinvesting in itself for decades, um, you know. And when the numbers were put out there, uh, you could see, holy moly, the size of government goes up and up and up, and policy complexity goes up and up. The number of regulations go higher and higher, and yet the resources available to Congress were going down. The number of experts that they had on hand had decreased since the 1980s. The number of committee staff that they had had gone down since the 1980s. This divergent trend was creating a gulf of expertise and competence and simple bandwidth. And then, you know, anytime you go to somebody who works on Capitol Hill and you ask how they're doing, you know, you're more than likely gonna hear the phrase drinking from a fire hose because they just have way too much to do. And so we started to tackle that. We created the Ledge Branch Capacity Working Group. We you know, started to just talk about the idea that Congress doesn't have the capacity, whether you define it as people, processes, resources, technology, however you want to define it, they were just lacking it. And we needed to start thinking about ways to fix that. And it's a wonderful issue insofar as it's not overtly 
political. There are no Democrat or Republican talking points for the most part on anything we're doing. Uh, and it gave us the space to bring people in from all sides who are all looking at Congress and saying, this place is struggling. This is no fun. Let's work together. And so now it's a very diverse group. We have academics, we have researchers, we got C4 advocacy world people. There's a whole slew of folks who are involved with this thing. And um, I, I think the select committee ultimately was uh, the result of the efforts of the Ledge Branch Capacity Working Group and some of the other folks who are affiliated with it. Washington's a funny place. If enough people continue to talk about an issue, uh, people will, will do something about it. Uh, Daniel, anything anything to add there or as, as the group continues moving forward? I know that um, I think this year you started the, the, the newsletter focused on these issues, um, kind of continuing to build out those, those efforts to, to put resources and keep this conversation front and center for folks. Yeah, so I think that both Kevin and um, Congressman Graves and, and Congressman Kilmer sort of identified significant pieces of like what's been happening. So, you know, the Congressman talked about, they put in these terms, so there's a punctuated equilibrium, like every 20, 30, 40 years, Congress realizes that things have gone awry and that they need to try to wrestle things back. And some, they, they had this effort in 1993, it wasn't successful to have this effort in 1978, it was more successful They had it in the late forties, which was more successful. They realized every so often, that there is a need for a significant course adjustment. And sometimes they do it and sometimes they don't. Uh, and it's often driven by crises. And um, because these things happen sort of beyond normal human scale, we have to reinvent a vocabulary to talk about this. We have to reinvent a way of communicating with one another. So Kevin leads these remarkable monthly meetings. Well, they were on the Hill for a while, but like these monthly convenings uh, where you talk about issues. I've got, as you mentioned, the first branch forecast newsletter for a year and a half. And, and there's ledgebranch.org, which is uh, what our street helps run um, to, to surface these issues from an academic perspective or from a, from a practitioner's perspective. Uh, so I also was at CRS for one-tenth the time, I believe, of Kevin. I left in, in 2007, I think. Um, and when I started working on these things in 2009, there wasn't anybody else really out there. Like there was CMF, but that was kind of it. And there was no awareness of the nature of these problems at all, right? There was no real research. There was no real data. There was some academic work, but it wasn't very good. Uh, Lee Drutman came to Sunlight Foundation where I was and I sort of showed him what I was doing. He's like, this is great. And he started doing more of that too. And it, and it you know, got more publicity, it got more attention, more people started getting attracted to it. One of the key things that people don't realize is that um, civil society runs on funding. So funders started to get interested, which meant that you could sustain this work. And all of those things sort of came together. So we've we've had a moment, right? The Select Committee on Modernization of Congress didn't come out of nowhere. It didn't come up, you know, the members pushed for it, but we pushed the members in part to push for it. Um, but it doesn't solve the problems, right? The Select Committee has a number of low-hanging fruit recommendations that are great. It starts to move us in the right direction. We had a lot of changes in the ledge branch appropriations bill over the last couple of years. We had a lot of great changes in the House rules over the last couple over the last couple of Congresses, but we're not where we need to be. So the question is, at least for me, how does this sustain? How do we? We're looking at another five or ten years to get back to decent. What is necessary to sort of move things along in that direction? How do we do it in a bipartisan or nonpartisan way? How do we make sure that all the stakeholders have buy-in? And when you have, and this is the thing that's tougher to talk about, there are certain concentrations of power that have arisen from the current arrangement that benefit some folks more than others. And how do you address them in a way that is actually effective to do? Uh, and that is the hardest nut to crack in terms of dealing with the people who are winning from the current dysfunctional system. Uh, and that's something that you just sort of have to, you know, you take one slice at a time until uh, by the time you finish uh, you have a very different system from where you started. And, and that's what we're just going to have to keep on doing. Well, that's a perfect opportunity for us to pause and take our final break. And then we'll return for our final segment with Daniel Schumann and Kevin Kosar to talk about those big questions in the way forward. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. 
Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're entering our last segment of the show on congressional capacity and modernizing Congress with Kevin Kosar and Daniel Schumann. Before the break, Daniel teed up uh, some big questions for us on on the, the path forward for uh, Congress and, and congressional institutions writ large to continue their quest to, to get back to good, um, really is what it sounded like after uh, several decades of institutional neglect and disinvestment. Um, and uh, I'd like to, Kevin, maybe have you bring us back to this conversation. What are some of those areas that um, do need to be on the horizon and need to stay on the horizon for the coming years as, as Congress seeks to, to rebuild its capacity um, and get its mojo back? Well, I think uh, Congress to date has not um, solved any of its problems, whether it's human resources and staffing, uh, career development, technology, uh, resourcing, uh, the processes by which it does stuff, its administrative structure, its committee structure. I mean, none of that stuff has been fixed. And moreover, I should make clear that I'm of the belief that there is never a moment where an organization is wholly fixed and wholly perfect in design to respond to the various demands on it. Rather, reorganization is something that every organization has to do constantly. And private sector organizations sometimes have, you know, uh, executives who are in charge of that sort of thing, but most often they have their customers who provide a certain feedback that, you know, if they don't respond, they start to financially suffer and their existence is threatened. And that forces a sort of paying attention to the institution as a whole to ensure that it is doing what it should do. Congress doesn't have that. Nobody kind of collectively minds the shop. And that's why the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress was a wonderful development because this was an official institutional venue in which these issues were to be addressed. They made thinking about Congress, figuring out what's working right and wrong, and coming out with their ideas, somebody's job. And usually it's not somebody's job. We have committees for all sorts of stuff, but that basic function, we don't have any committees to do that. And going forward, what I would like to see is a committee that's created to permanently do this, to permanently take feedback on how Congress is doing from members, from outsiders, and to come up with ideas and to kind of keep moving the institution forward because it has so far to go. Um, you just can't expect there to be some sort of big bang movement of reform where Congress, who's got so many problems uh, in their operations, will just suddenly leap forward and yay, it's fixed. Uh, no, it's a long, long haul. And in our, in our politically polarized time, uh, institutional change is even more difficult to do on a significant scale which is why you have to kind of keep doing the small ball reforms year after year after year and essentially teach the organization to make reformist behavior a habit, not just something one does on occasion as a spasm in response to a cataclysm. Uh, unsurprisingly, I agree with him. Uh, I think that uh, one, you have to have a place that has this reflexive quality. Congress, it, politicians are not rewarded for thinking about congressional operations, right? There, there isn't this, you know, this constituency largely that exists back in the district that's like, well, you know, you really addressed this thorny question on the way like House Information Resources functions and we're gonna vote for you on that basis. Like that's just not a thing. So how do you, in an institution where there's all of these forces that force it apart, that says, no, okay, we're going to have data about how we operate. We're going to have a dashboard of like what's working and not working. We're going to take an input. We're going to make recommendations. We're going to be willing to discomfort people from time to time for things that, for systems and processes that are useful because it is for the good of the institution. 
there, there's a there's a great example of this that that people hate when I bring up, um, but I will do it anyway, which is the Office of Congressional Ethics. The Office of Congressional Ethics was created in 2007 in response to a number of ethical crises uh, inside the House of Representatives. Um, OC is not beloved by members of Congress, but it plays an incredibly important role in stopping small ethical scandals from becoming giant dysfunction. Right? They are not they are not made up of members of Congress. They have this sort of uh, transparency oversight role. And in doing that, they shine a light on where things aren't working and they prod things to change a bit. And it's not comfortable for people. Nobody likes being constantly irritated just a little bit. Uh, I'm sure that's probably how they feel about me and maybe Kevin, although probably not Kevin, probably mostly me uh, from time to time. Um, but you need to have an internal function that thinks about what's working and what's not working and how do we change things to make them work better. And that is something that is entirely lacking inside the legislative branch. There aren't these institutionalists from a broad perspective that are brought together in a position of power and influence to do sort of what needs to be done. This is not true in the executive branch. You have executive branch supremacists who come in basically and they're like, you know, we're going to be unitary executive or the DOJ is going to be powerful. We're going to create an office of legal counsel that's going to behave in a certain way. Like you have this in other places. But the incentives don't align in the same way for the legislative branch. So it is our task in part to go and empower that, to create that, to create that positive feedback loop where you make a change and you get a good result from it and then you want to do more. If you don't do those things, you get drift. And that's what we've had. We've had 40 years of drift and nothing works right anymore. Like no one's been tending to the machinery. So we have to go back and, and fix the machinery. And that could be personnel, that could be technology, that could be structures. Um, but that means that you're taking on power. And that is something that is always hard to do, which is why it's easier to do it in small increments over time instead of trying to do like a quantum leap every 30 years, uh, which is which is ultimately very difficult to do and it doesn't last. Yeah, I should add, if I may, that um, one of the popular misconceptions about Congress is that it's stuffed full of these geezers who've been there for 30, 40 years each. And the fact of the matter is, is turnover is pretty rapid. I remember about five years ago when I looked at congressional tenures, you know, more, than, more than half the members had only been there uh, five, six, maybe eight years. And realizing that the modern member of Congress is actually here in Congress, walking about the Capitol, a minority of days each year, we have a relatively inexperienced group of legislators up there, most of whom have never experienced a Congress operating any other way than it does now, which is hyper-polarized, which is dysfunctionally budgeting through these giant thousand, 2,000 page omnibus spending bills, place where leadership pretty much calls the shots on what gets voted on. They think this is like business as usual, but it's not usual. It's an atypical time. And people down there, A, don't know that. And B, there's a huge number of people on Capitol Hill, staff and legislators, who are not having fun. They came to make change. They came to be policymakers. They came to do things for the people back home. And they find themselves in these grotesque partisan uh, spitting matches with one another and being forced to raise money and to, you know, bark the leadership talking points. Um, they don't feel like they're solving things. Yet, despite there being so many, they don't have the capacity to collectively act and change things. And there's a sense of learned helplessness among them. Where they just kind of shrug like, well, this is reality, we can't do anything. No, you can. And select committee was a place where the things could start to get done. And we just gotta find a way to create another venue where members can go to it, whether it's a caucus or a committee or all these possibilities. And they can get together and they can collaborate and they can fix the things that no matter if you're left, right, center, you can agree just aren't working and are inexcusable. For the next few months, while you still have the select committee here 
and groups have been paying attention to it, what are kind of those steps that you all are looking at, thinking about to galvanize that attention, to, to keep things moving forward? Daniel? So, I, you know, the select committee will have one final round of recommendations that are coming out, but, but I think in terms of its work, it's largely finished, right? It has one set of things. So where I'm looking is I'm looking to what happens to the select committee's recommendations or things that it wasn't able to get to, and that's going to be, uh, we have the House Legislative Branch Appropriations Bill, which is a traditional mechanism for reforms, and this year's bill is, committee report is phenomenal, but the Senate hasn't done anything yet. If the Senate does something, then this actually becomes a law, and you, you'll see the increment move three notches forward. Um, the next thing is the House rules. The House rules, and both the caucus rules and the conference rules for the parties, but, but the, the rules of the House themselves are a significant place where a lot of these forms will be embedded, and that's enacted, uh, uh, is passed in the House, and the first day of the House comes back on, on the fifth or whatever it is. Um, so that will be the next increment. And then, things will sort of slide until you, until you get to appropriation season again. You know, the last two years have been unusual in the House. Uh, it has been the only chamber that has been in opposition to the executive branch. And they haven't really been able to pass any legislation. You know, there was no real expectation that they would have been able to do so, um, which meant that they actually had more of a focus on, in theory at least, improving oversight, improving operations and things like that. Uh, we don't know what the next election will bring, but if you start seeing the House of the same party as the president, then a lot of these oversight changes will become a lot less of a priority, which is unfortunate. Uh, but hopefully, some of the other changes that are necessary around staffing and personnel and technology, particularly as COVID continues, will continue to be a priority. And you can go and sort of cement a number of those things into place. And uh, having done this for... 15-ish years. Um, alternations of power are the times where you can make the greatest changes. Um, so we're going to have an alternation in power in the Senate. We're going to potentially, we're going to have an alternation in power in the White House, potentially. Speaker Pelosi will not be speaker too much longer. She'll maybe be speaker for another two years, and then she will retire, and it will be somebody else. So that's another alternation in power. When you have those moments, that is the time where all the entrenchment that has built up to put the person in place um, changes, and you have an you have an opportunity to make a, a more significant set of changes than you would otherwise. So that's that's what I'm looking next to is the, those sort of pieces of the equation. Kevin, thirty seconds on your final word. Yeah, um, places I'm looking for the continuance of change are first in the new Congress. Who's going to take over the key positions, the House Committee on Administration, the, you know, who's going to lead it, who's going to be the ranking member, are these forward-looking reformer sorts. And, you know, obviously, as Daniel noted also, the uh, appropriators, uh, that's, a, that's a key thing. Um, and third, um, you know, whenever the House reorganizes itself every two years, you have this moment where it has to readopt rules. Well, that last time that it did that, it created the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. There may be another opportunity there to do something. Well, uh, thank you so much. Kevin Kosar from the R Street Institute, Daniel Schumann from Demand Progress and the Demand Progress Education Fund. Uh, thanks again earlier in the conversation for Representatives Kilmer and Graves from the Select Committee. This has been a great Fed Talk focused on the first branch. Uh, Fed Talk is brought to you by the Federal Employment Law from Rashad Bransford and Roth. Thanks for listening.